chapter 15 from verse 50 to verse 58. So it's the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which may be slightly different from the ones that are normally used here. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And may God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Amen. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we read in Isaiah that your word will not return to you without accomplishing the task that you have set it to do. Father, this is a great encouragement to us. And we pray, Lord, now that as we turn to study this portion of your holy word, we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish that which you have set it to do our hearts would be lifted up and encouraged and we pray, Lord, that there may be those who have not yet put their faith in Christ and as they listen and hear of the great things that Christ has done, that they will be drawn to him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I did something a few months ago that I've never done in my life before. I asked a minister if I could possibly preach for him. I've never done that before. And I did so for a rather selfish reason. For many years, I have used the anniversary of my ordination, which was the 22nd of November, 1976, as an opportunity to preach on whatever topic was burning in my heart at the time. Now I'm no longer a parish minister. I don't get that opportunity. But I thought... Callum and Chris are fairly soft touches, so I'll try and see if they would be happy. And, of course, the 20th of November is the closest to that date. So it's 46 years that I've been a Christian minister. What I'd like to do this morning is two things. Firstly, I'd like to reminisce a bit. They tell me that when you start prefacing everything with the words, I remember when... You've reached old age. Well, I've gone way past that, way past. So I'd like to reminisce a little. And secondly, I would then like to study a verse in the Bible about the ministry of the whole body of Christ. And I trust that that will be an encouragement to you all. So firstly then, my reminiscences. 
And these, I start with things that are not really very important, and I'm thinking particularly of Presbyterian churches. In 1976, many ministers wore clerical clothing. They would wear a white collar and maybe some other special clerical clothing. It's sometimes I used to wonder why on earth they don't all die of heat exhaustion in the Queensland climate, but they seem to survive it. In 1976, most ministers used fairly formal language uh, and in some cases um, they would use in their prayers these and thous and doest and askest and so on. Uh, I haven't used haven't heard a minister use that sort of language for many, many years now. In 1976, the Lord's Supper was held every three months and all the elders wore dark suits and it was a very sober occasion. Today, many churches are holding the Lord's Supper more often and the elders often wear just smart casual clothing. In 1976, the Bible that was used was generally the authorised version or perhaps the revised standard version. These days, uh, you never know what translation is going to be used in the church, uh, and some of them really don't sound much like a Bible at all. Um, so it's vastly different. In 1976, just about every worship service had four songs, no more, no less, and one of them was always a psalm. That's changed. Today there are a huge number of modern Christian songs and they range from the simply awful to songs which are theologically accurate and musically excellent. But unfortunately, you can never predict if you walk into a strange church just what you're going to be confronted with. In 1976, particularly in country areas, there was a certain prestige in being a church elder. And the result was that men were sometimes made elders and they had no understanding of the gospel and no understanding of holiness of life. But it was a good thing for your business to be known as a church elder. Today, I would suggest there's no prestige in being a church elder. And I think that in general, elders today tend to know clearly what the gospel is and to be students of the Bible, and that's a great thing. Now, let me talk about some matters that are more significant. I have discovered in the last 46 years that when people say, but this is the way we've always done it, they're almost always wrong. We have always put a vase of flowers on the communion table. No, you haven't. Mrs Jones started to do it 10 years ago. We have always sung the doxology after the uh, offering. No, you haven't. It was only the previous minister that introduced it. You never did it before then. And I could give you other examples, but I'm sure, I'm sure you get my point, that when people say, that's the way we've always done it, they're almost always wrong. A positive change, in my opinion, is that the church has been forced to be much more careful about risks and about the care of vulnerable people such as the elderly and children. Shameful things have been done in the name of the church. In children's institutions that should never, 
ever have been tolerated. So that's a good thing. A negative change is that awe in the presence of God has been largely lost. God is seen as a mate. We go to church to have fun. We've forgotten that our God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've forgotten these things. And we've forgotten that our ability to enter his presence with his people is entirely of grace. Another negative change is that clarity of doctrine is regarded as an embarrassment at times and unnecessary. I think in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a growth uh, in the desire to understand biblical doctrine amongst many of the churches, which is a great thing. But in my opinion, it has peaked and it has started to decline and you get um, ministers, elders, churches that are not really concerned about clarity of doctrine. They just want society to like them and to come into the church and be happy like they are. And that is so embarrassing, in my opinion. Well, that's enough of my reminiscences. We need to get down to examining the word of God and what it is saying to us. I actually had thoughts all worked out for my sermon this morning and then a fortnight ago, yes, I think it was, when Callum made his announcement about the presbytery decision, I thought, that's no good. It needs to be something else. Because it does seem to me that one of the important roles of a pastor is to be an encouragement to the people. Because life's tough, isn't it? Life's tough. There are hard choices that need to be made. Working in an office, in an organisation, in a factory. There are, there are problems. And there are problems in the morality of our society. And we, we grieve for them. And we think, what's going on? It's getting worse. And we look at the church and we think, well, what's the church doing? Is she standing up for the truth? And we say, mm, not very often. So one of the tasks of a pastor is to be encouraging. So what I would like to do this morning is to seek to fulfil that task. And I'd like to turn to just one verse. It's the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15:58, And it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. So let's look at this verse. And I just want to take it very simply, phrase by phrase by phrase. First of all, Paul uses the word therefore. Now, it's only a little word therefore, and you might say, well, it's not very important, but it has its use. It has its use, and it has a very significant use in what Paul is talking about here. It ties what he is about to say in this verse with what he has said before. What has he said before? He has been talking about the resurrection. So this little word, therefore, is important. You could say, I studied all, hard all through the university term, therefore I will get good marks 
in the examination? Well, we hope so. But you see how the word therefore has connected the two things. And so it happens here too. Paul has been talking about the certainty of the resurrection, the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the certainty of the resurrection of the believer. He says the dead will be raised imperishable, the mortal will be raised immortal, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul is very excited about this and he concludes, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that for the Christian, it is victory, victory, victory. Because of the certainty of those truths, then what Paul is about to say in this verse is also a certainty. We need to keep that in mind. So Paul goes on. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, he addresses his readers and he calls them beloved brothers, or to use an older English word, brethren. And I'm sure you're all aware that so very often in the Bible, often in the Bible when the word brothers or brethren is used, it means both male and female. We also have that very formal word in English called siblings. But it just doesn't ring well, does it, to say, therefore, my beloved siblings. It sounds a little on the pompous side. Notice that Paul doesn't call them colleagues or citizens or business partners Although, I suppose, in a sense, there's some truth in that, but he calls them beloved brothers or brethren. The great apostle Paul looks upon these people as his family, his beloved brothers and sisters. He looks upon them as having a special, close relationship that cannot be expressed by anything else except that familial adjective, that familiar noun, brothers. Brethren, his heart yearns for them. He hurts when they hurt. He rejoices when they rejoice. Now, before we move on, we need to consider this. Do you look upon the members of this congregation, or if you're from somewhere else of the congregation where you're involved, do you look upon them as beloved brothers and sisters? Do you hurt when they hurt? Do you rejoice when they rejoice? Or do you say, well, I don't really know them at all. I just know their name, that's all. Well, really, is that good enough? Christ died to pay for your sin and to give you eternal life and to make you united with all the rest of his blood-bought people. We need to be able to say, yes, they are my brothers and sisters. Then he says, to be steadfast. They are to be steadfast. Now, this is an interesting word. The Greek word that is used in the original is the same word that is used within the word cathedral. And a cathedral, as you all know, is a huge building that is founded on solid rock and stone. Or today, reinforced concrete. But it's got a solid foundation. Let's think of something else that is similar. You all know what Stonehenge is. Let's just think of those huge columns of rock embedded in the ground. I don't know, but I should think it would take two or three bulldozers acting together to push one over. They are so firmly planted in the ground. So the Christian is to be firmly planted. He is to be steadfast. He or she (coughs) is to be so firmly planted in the foundational truths of the gospel that not even two or three bulldozers can undermine 
where that faith is planted. Do you know the Apostles' Creed? Now, I know it's very, very short, but it's not a bad summary of the things that are the fundamentals, the foundationals. And it's good to be able to go through it and to remind ourselves, yes, we believe these things. Is it a necessary reminder today? Of course it is. We have people on every side wanting to upset the foundation. I'm sure you've all heard of Bishop Spong, who died not so long ago. And here is a man, a church man, who derided the resurrection and who persuaded people to think that the resurrection was laughable to believe in our modern era. Now, Archbishop Spong, he has met his maker and he's answerable to him, not me. But what sort of damage has been done? Encouraging people not to be steadfast, to be firmly placed upon the doctrines of Scripture. And then we have people like Sir David Attenborough. Now, don't get me wrong, the photography in his shows is absolutely beautiful. But he assures us with absolute certainty that everything can be explained as the result of evolutionary forces over millions of years and you would be stupid to believe otherwise. What's that doing? It is undermining our faith and we are called here by Paul to be steadfast. And there is good reason for Paul to remind the believers in Corinth and to remind us today to be steadfast. Then we move on to the word immovable. We are to be immovable. Now, this too is a very interesting word. I vaguely remember when I did physics at high school, and I've never done any more physics since then, so it is very vague. An interesting word. We learned about kinetic energy. We learned about some other energies too, which I've forgotten. But kinetic energy is the energy that something possesses because it is moving. So a motor car has kinetic energy, and if it runs into you, you will feel the effects of that kinetic energy. Paul uses a word like kinetic for immovable here in this verse. So Paul means that the believer is someone who can't be pushed around. I'm sure you are aware that there are people within the church who are easily pushed around. Someone says, oh, don't you know that the Lord is going to return in 1914? And there were lots of people who said, yes, yes, he's going to come in 1914. Are you aware he didn't? Someone says that when it ticks over from 1999 to the year 2000, things are all going to collapse and there's going to be such shattering change that the Lord will return. He didn't. Some say that the early chapters of Genesis are merely a mythical way of understanding something that primitive people didn't have the scientific knowledge to cope with. And they're not actually true at all. And they add, well, the people who are saying this, they're educated people. They're important people. They must be right. How stupid I was to believe that Genesis is literally true. You see, some people are easily moved, easily distracted, They easily moved away from the faith once delivered to the saints. 
They run after what seems to be new and persuasive. But Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, no, I want you to be immovable. Don't run after the last, latest fashion. God's word doesn't change. It's always true. Then he goes on to say that he wants them to abound in the work of the Lord. Now, you and I know perfectly well that there are people who say, I've done my bit in this church. I'm not doing any more until I see others pulling their weight. Tell that to Paul. What if someone had said that to Paul? Paul, no, no, I've, I've done enough. I'm not doing any more until I see other people getting up and pulling their weight. What would Paul have said to that? Tell that to Christ. Oh, Christ, you've done enough. Don't run yourself ragged. Wait until others come on board with the message and take up their responsibility. Then you can get going again. Can you imagine that? Of course we can't. You've probably all heard of Mary Slessor, who was a Scottish woman, or perhaps I should say, she was a wee Scots lassie. And she laboured all her adult life in what we today call Nigeria to take the gospel to the tribes in the area of where she was. Can you imagine someone saying, now Mary, you've done your bit. Wait until others show that they're willing to do their bit. Then you can start again. No, she abounded in the work of the Lord and it brought her joy and peace. Perhaps you've heard of James Gilmore who went from, also from Scotland, who went to Mongolia because the Lord laid it on his heart that the gospel needed to go to the people of Mongolia. He first went, this is about the 1860s, he first went to China where he learned Chinese, then he went into Mongolia and lived a nomadic life because the Mongolians at that time were nomadic people. So he would live in tents. Did he say, oh, I've done enough. I'll wait till someone else decides to share the burden. Then I'll start working again. No, he didn't. He didn't. There's a very interesting thing about James Gilmore. He was back in China and he was staying in the home of a friend of his who was a married man. He also was a missionary. And he saw on the mantelpiece a photograph of the man's wife and the wife's sister. And in his travels through Mongolia, he felt deeply the loneliness and the need for companionship in the work. So he wrote to that young woman and proposed marriage. They'd never met. They didn't know each other. He also wrote to his parents and said... I've proposed marriage to this girl in London. And before his parents got the letter, there was this knock on the door and a young woman there. And she said, oh, I'm your son's fiancée. They knew nothing about it. She had never met him. But she travelled to China. They got married in China. And she went with him to Mongolia and she shared his work. And the interesting thing is that she learned Chinese and Mongolian and was far better at it than her husband was. Can you imagine her or him saying, oh, well, we've done our bit. Let's just sit back, just relax, wait until other people come 
to take up the work. So this is what Paul is saying. Abound in the work of the Lord. This is your joy. Find out what the Lord is calling you to do and abound in it. It's your joy and your peace. Now notice he says abound in the work of the Lord because there is something that we need to take a breath and we need to consider something here. Paul says in this phrase, the work of the Lord, and in the next phrase, in the Lord. You see, it is possible to work within the church at what we believe to be important and to grind ourselves into the ground and wear ourselves out doing something that God has not called us to do. And that is a terrible thing to do. So we need to pray. We need to seek advice from other people. Do you believe this is what the Lord is calling me to do? So we need to be convinced that what we are doing is a task given to us by the Lord, not something imposed by ourselves or imposed by other people. Other people will make you feel guilty if you're not doing what they think you should be doing. That's not the way to abound in the work of the Lord. Then lastly... Paul says, knowing that your labour is not in vain. So here is the glorious promise that Paul gives to us. He says, you know, knowing that your labour is not in vain. You may not be able to see it. You may not have any proof, but you know. I'm sure you all know the story of Arthur Stace, that only slightly educated man in Sydney, And he went to different parts of Sydney and he would write the word eternity on the footpaths of Sydney. That's not much, is it? Right? We'd say, oh, well, that's not doing much. But Arthur Stace believed that this is something he could do and this is what the Lord was calling him to do. And it would not be in vain. And it wasn't. There are people who trace their conversion to Jesus Christ, to this one word written on the pavement, eternity, that made them think and keep on thinking until eventually they came to faith in Christ. Then, as the millennium ticked over, millions of people around the world saw the Sydney Harbour Bridge erupt in fireworks and the word eternity emblazoned along its length. Did Arthur Stace envision this? Of course he didn't, but he did know that his labour was not in vain. The Lord would honour his promise. Was it labour for Arthur Stace? Yes, it was. It was work. He had to get up, get dressed, hop on a bus, go somewhere, start writing these, these, these words, eternity. It was work. It was labour. He might have preferred to go down to Bondi Beach and spend the day sunbaking on the beach and reading the newspaper, but he didn't. He had labour to do, and it was a joy to do it. And so we have labour to do. And there are many who do spend the day sunbaking on the beach or following the cricket or the football. But there is no joy like carrying out the labour that the Lord has first given us to do. And then... There is the last word, which in the Greek is just one word. But in our English translation, we can't do it. We've got to have three words, not in vain. What a precious promise. When we feel that the ground around us is changing and not for the better, 
nothing is improving, evil has the upper hand, immorality has won the day. Remember these words, your labour is not in vain. It is not pointless, it is not hollow, it is not a waste, it is not just whistling in the wind, it is not in vain. So if you don't remember anything else of what I've said this morning, that's fine, but just remember this that as you seek to serve the Lord here at Everton Park or wherever it might be, remember this, that your labour is not in vain. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for these words of the Apostle Paul. And we thank you, Lord, that though they were written about 2,000 years ago, yet, Father, they are fresh for us today. And we ask, Lord, that these words would sink deeply into our hearts and we would have renewed enthusiasm for the work of the Lord. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.